0: Hello, welcome to Episode 5 of Freaking Out About Opening Day with Randy Freaking, the podcast about the history and celebrations of Cincinnati's most revered non-religious holiday. In our first four episodes, we gave an overview of the storied history of Opening Day in Cincinnati. Greg Rhodes and I then discussed the special occasions that have occurred on Opening Day, Howard Wilkinson joined us as we explored Opening Day folklore, and in our last episode, John Arardi and I took a deeper dive into the life of Frank Bancroft, the father of Opening Day, and we also talked about the role of females in our Opening Day history. In this episode, we will relive some of the many interesting years in Opening Day history. From the 1869 opener, the very first one, to tally-ho parties, to World War II, the assassination of Martin Luther King, the 1990 MLB lockout that forced the Reds to open on the road, and the opening of the Banks development on the riverfront in 2012. We may also sneak in 1972. There are so many interesting years where Opening Day was special, but also coincided with local, national, and world events that I wish I could cover them all, but I suppose most of you don't have an extra 20 hours to listen to me today. Of course, it's all in the book. My book combines the history of each of the 150 years of Opening Day festivities with some references to the games. And that is what we will do today with seven of those years. We will talk about the history of opening day. If you want to learn more details about each game, you should buy John Arardi and Greg Rhodes' book that is entitled Opening Day. So enough of the intro. Let's get started. Any look at various years in opening day history has to start with the very first one, on May 4, 1869 when the first ever all-professional baseball team, the Cincinnati Red Stockings, debuted. Ironically, that first game started with a parade, hence the subtitle of my book, Cincinnati's 150-year opening day history, The Hoopla Started with a Parade in 1869. Like many traditions, The observance of opening day in Cincinnati has evolved over time, but the energy undergirding it has always stemmed from the pure joy of welcoming a new baseball season, and that started with the very first game of the Red Stockings. While the unofficial holiday known as opening day was not recognized until decades later, May 4, 1869, marked the beginning of Cincinnati's love affair with professional baseball. In the eight-page edition of the Cincinnati Enquirer that morning, the game was previewed as follows. Quote, the Cincinnati and Great Western Baseball Clubs play the first regular match game of the season this afternoon at 3 o'clock on the Union grounds. Both clubs will send forth the whole of their first nines, and a very interesting game may be expected, unquote. An ad also appeared in the classified section promoting the first game in the history of professional baseball. While the activities of the first opening day bear little resemblance to the current state of affairs, according to author Stephen Gushoff in The Red Stockings of Cincinnati, baseball's first all-professional team, the city of Cincinnati was in a festive mood that day, and the players themselves joined the parade to Union grounds. Here is what Mr. Gushoff wrote. Harry Wright's boys rode out to the Union grounds in a caravan of fancy ribbon-adorned carriages Behind which followed hundreds of merry cranks, eager to see whether their boys could measure up to the first real competition of the season. The Red Stockings players strode confidently into the Union grounds and onto the emerald hued field, resplendent in their crisp white flannel uniforms and blazing scarlet hosiery, marching nine abreast across the field like soldiers in formation on their way into battle, It's really unbelievable that they paraded into the very first game in Cincinnati. There was no marching band, no parade grand marshal, and no ceremonial first pitch as there would be later on. The fan base consisted of a small number of those cranks and the opposing team wasn't even from another city. The professional Cincinnati Red Stockings beat the amateur Great Westerns of Cincinnati 45-9, to with three inside-the-park home runs. In those days, no player ever hit a ball over the fence at Union Grounds because, like most baseball fields, Union Grounds did not have a fence. The Enquirer apparently did not even cover the game, as there is no mention of it in the newspaper the next morning. And who could blame the readers of the Enquirer for missing the brief promotion of the first game? Page one of the paper detailed the trip to England that the United States ambassador to Great Britain, John Motley, was scheduled to take 15 days later. Quote, Despite all the talk about war with England, the instructions to be given motley are yet subjects for further discussion and consideration by the president and his cabinet, unquote, said the article. Farther down the column, concern was expressed about U.S. citizens in Cuba, and the U.S. consul General at Havana was cautioned not to, quote, precipitate a quarrel with the Spanish authorities. Unquote. With professional baseball being a new phenomenon, the Enquirer was more concerned about events in Indianapolis, Columbus, and New York, as well as the doings of the Cincinnati City Council the previous day. Local commerce concerns were of much greater interest to Enquire readers than was baseball. On page 7, an ad appeared for a, quote, good boot and shoemaker, unquote, promising, quote, good wages, unquote, if one wanted a job in Boone County, Kentucky, about a 10-minute car ride today from Cincinnati, but much longer by horse in 1869. The riverboat schedule showed 11 departure times for various cities along the Ohio River. And in other transportation news, the nation's first transcontinental railroad was five days from completion in Utah. Without knowing it, Harry Wright and several hundred baseball fans launched a tradition in 1869 that would become entrenched in Cincinnati's culture for the celebration that has grown to include cages of warbling canaries in 1886, A century of parades beginning at Finley Market, citywide parties, to a block party with music, beer, and food throughout the banks entertainment district, and with military planes performing flyovers to signal the season's beginning. Although the ragtag version of the first parade bears no resemblance to its current form, this public celebration of opening day became the hallmark Of the spring celebration. And who were the merry cranks referenced by Stephen Gushoff? They were baseball crazed fans named after a local lawyer. Maybe they would have been called freaks if I was around in 1869. Okay, enough about 1869. In previous episodes, we covered the development of opening day from 1869 to 1906 largely due to Frank Bancroft. But a very interesting year was 1907. The Reds had disbanded the official parade in 1903 because they thought fans really just wanted to focus on the game itself. How wrong they were. In 1907, the fans took over the party. While the tradition of celebrating the first day of the baseball season was well established by April 11, 1907, the notion that opening day was a day for partying became firmly implanted on that date. For decades previously, there had been rooters groups for fans, but the absence of an official parade since 1903 opened the door for the rooters to take a more active part in planning festivities on their own. These groups began to stage their own march through downtown on the way to the ballpark. Their processions were led by tally-ho wagons filled with fans dressed in costumes and blowing noisemakers as if it was New Year's Eve. The tallyhoes often carried bands that played along the way. Reliable reports indicate that the wagons stopped frequently at local drinking establishments along the route. On the morning of the 1907 opener, Cincinnati seemed to have its interests divided between baseball and crime. The paper that day devoted four pages of coverage to the so-called trial of the century, involving the husband of America's first pinup girl, Evelyn Nesbitt. Nesbitt's husband, Harry Thaw, was accused of murdering a wealthy architect in an open-air theater in New York City. The architect had sexually assaulted Ms. Nesbitt when she was a teenager, and Nesbitt's new husband wanted to exact revenge. After a two-month trial, jury deliberations had begun the night before opening day and continued for 47 hours before the jury announced that it could not reach a verdict. Known as the Thaw Trial, the city and nation were consumed with the murder case. Despite the captivating theatrics of the trial, fans displayed their usual enthusiasm for the opening game. The Enquirer noted, quote, the intense excitement which marks the opening of the new baseball season, was evident last night in hotel lobbies, in cafes, on the streets, and in every place of public resorts, excluding all other topics of conversation. Baseball fans were not talking about the trial. Rather, they were discussing who was going to pitch, whether it would be a good afternoon for a spitball, and every other detail of the upcoming contest. Nearly 20 rooting groups paraded through the downtown streets in tally and automobiles. One such group, called Spangler's Rooters, were described as, quote, a grotesque-looking lot in all sorts of absurd costumes with poke straw hats, unquote. The horse-drawn wagons were decorated with large streaming banners. They were capable of carrying anywhere between 6 and 40 people, and fans were equipped with megaphones, cornets, horns, and rattles. Even after the Tally Hoes began to arrive at the ballpark at 2 o'clock, the partiers continued during pregame ceremonies and during the game itself the party was on the crowd was so lively that the umpire's voice could seldom be heard as the party carried on in the grandstand the two teams gathered near home plate according to custom vice mayor faff made a brief address before he hurled a new ball into the diamond the crowd was hushed during these proceedings but the silence was broken when umpire Hank O'Day yelled, play ball! With cloudy skies and a 45-degree temperature, it was the smallest crowd for an opener since 1902, but it was no doubt the noisiest. The Reds won the game in their last at-bat. These tally-ho parades were the focus of the festivities until World War I began, and after the war, the Findlay Market Association began its 100-year tradition of sponsoring the parade in 1920. The Roaring Twenties and the Great Depression both affected the annual festivities, but I would like to jump forward to a fascinating year, 1942. In 1942, worried citizens had wondered since the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor whether the 1942 baseball season should proceed at all. However, these concerns were diminished after President Franklin D. Roosevelt issued his famous green light letter to Commissioner Landis on January 15. Roosevelt advised that it would, quote, be best for the country to keep baseball going, unquote, and suggested that more night games be scheduled so hard-working people could attend the games. In an editorial on opening day, the Enquirer agreed with FDR, reasoning that baseball is, quote, an eminently worthwhile public entertainment, unquote, and while many of the game's most talented players were joining the armed forces, the time had not yet come for baseball to become one of the major war casualties. But the editorial concluded rather ominously, quote, Let's play ball while we can, and for however long we can. Unquote. As 1942 unfolded, Japan was marching forward in its conquest of Southeast Asia. And, five days before the April 14 opener, the United States had suffered one of its most embarrassing defeats in the peninsula of Bataan in the Philippine Islands. General Douglas MacArthur had unsuccessfully attempted to defend the last Allied stronghold. War anxiety was at its peak. An official from the Veterans of Foreign Wars warned a Rotary Club in Newport, Kentucky, that, quote, we are losing the war as fast as is possible, unquote. He even began to advocate for a 60-hour work week, stating that many of the citizens living in the Midwest, including Cincinnati, did not fully appreciate that the nation was in a war that it could lose he went on to say the unthinkable, quote, it would be a very simple matter for Cincinnati or northern Kentucky to be bombed with modern equipment such as incendiary bombs, unquote. The Associated Press seemingly confirmed those fears by reporting on the morning of opening day that four American ships had been torpedoed off the Atlantic coast by German submarines, with shelling occurring within sights of hundreds of, quote, spectators, unquote, on the shores of North Carolina. President Roosevelt tried to calm nerves by confidently explaining the United States would triumph in two or three years, a prediction that was accurate. He said, quote, I shudder to think of what would happen to any part of the hemisphere that came under German domination, unquote. Colonel Eddie Rickenbacker, an American flying ace from World War I, predicted that the war would last five years, maybe ten. And just a day earlier, a Justice Department official described pre-war agreements between General Electric and German companies as amounting to the defense contractor, quote, holding hands with Hitler, unquote. Nonetheless, Red's officials were well prepared for this most unusual opener. Fans were greeted upon arrival with signs on the outfield wall that read, Remember Pearl Harbor! For victory, buy defense bonds and stamps! Avoid waste! and keep fit. Foul balls could no longer be kept as souvenirs, and spectators were instructed to return them to be donated to the Recreation Departments of the Armed Forces. This policy remained in effect throughout World War II. Commissioner Landis and the league presidents instructed umpires to be more sparing about tossing out new baseballs to replace those damaged during plays. Although fans understood that slugging might be curtailed by pitchers who took advantage of scuffed baseballs, they did not complain because of the war anxiety. This wartime opening proved to be a solemn affair. Realizing that the crowd was more concerned about what was happening on the various battlefields and in the country's defense plants than on the baseball fields, the Finley Market Association chose to discard its tradition of presenting flowers to Reds officials and players. Instead, the head of the organization presented Reds manager Bill McKechnie with two war bonds after the band, quote, whipped the crowd into the proper pregame spirit with repeated renditions of, quote, deep in the heart of Texas, unquote, a popular song, that had just been released. The Reuters requested that the first war bond be awarded to the Reds player batting in and scoring the first run. The Enquirer reported on the crowd's reaction during the national anthem. Quote, It was a solemn-faced gathering that stood yesterday as the stars and stripes were being raised on the center field flagpole. It was a quiet, serious, and attentive crowd that listened to Smitty's band play the national anthem. There was no haphazard jostling or muffled talking during the ceremony. The men, with their hats held reverently over their hearts, stood in military fashion. They then simply held their hats and stood, first on one foot, then the other, or with their backs to the flag. The women were just as attentive and solemn, unquote. Bucky Walters and Ival Goodman won the war bonds, but the Pirates won the game. A sellout crowd of 34,104 left the park disappointed with a loss, but hoping that this would not be the last opening day. And indeed, it was not. Baseball gradually returned to full strength after the war. Openers began to be televised in 1949. The McCarthy era resulted in the Reds becoming the Redlegs in the 1950s because of the communist scare. And we moved into the era of baseball racial integration and the arrival of Pete Rose in 1963 all of which was briefly discussed in previous episodes. And I'd now like to move to 1968, when the assassination of civil rights leader Martin Luther King resulted in some controversy as to when the baseball season should start. Dr. King, the most visible leader in the civil rights movement, was assassinated by James Earl Ray on April 4. 1968, just four days before the scheduled April 8th opener. King, inspired by the nonviolent activism of Mahatma Gandhi, had tried for 14 years to advance civil rights through nonviolence and civil disobedience. He had famously told Don Newcomb, an African-American who was a longtime Dodgers pitcher, quote, Don, I don't know what I would have done without you guys setting up minds of people for change. You, Jackie Robinson, and Roy Campanella will never know how easy you made it for me to do my job. Newcomb, by the way, had played for the Reds in 1959 and 1960. Following King's death, Riots occurred in many cities throughout the country, including in Cincinnati's Avondale community. President Johnson announced a national day of mourning for April 9, the day of King's funeral. His casket was carried through the streets of Atlanta on a mule-drawn cart in a tribute that was unprecedented in the nation's history. His marble crypt was inscribed with the words, quote, free at last, unquote. The Reds and the rest of MLB, except the Los Angeles Dodgers, quickly postponed their openers. The Dodgers later backed down when Philadelphia Phillies players said they would refuse to play on the day of the funeral. Opening day in Cincinnati was delayed until April 10, when all teams would open the season. On the day of the funeral, Reds president Francis Dale hoped that baseball quote, could bring a smile back to our citizens. Unquote. He stated his belief that there is a time for mourning and a time to return to the job of day to day living. Sports columnist Lou Smith poignantly explained why the postponement was necessary. Quote, It seems to me that it was fitting that the baseball season, opening day of America's favorite sport, should be postponed out of deference and respect for Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. For wasn't it baseball that first put into action, so to speak, the philosophy of Dr. King? It was baseball that first acknowledged the ability of those other than the white players. Perhaps before too long, all men will be judged, as Dr. King said, not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character, unquote. That's one of my most favorite quotes that I read in the Enquirer doing my research. It's really a touching quote. For the opening day game, plainclothes police officers plus a dozen extra uniformed police circulated through Crosley Field. The Avondale riots had occurred just two nights earlier and the curfew had been lifted that morning as fans entered the ballpark. Although every seat had been sold in advance, only 28,000 111 spectators attended the 10-4 win over the Cubs. Both the ushers and the ballpark sported a new look. The ushers were dressed in new Palm Beach red jackets, and the grandstand roof featured pennants identifying each National League team. To the delight of fans, a beer garden was added under the stands behind the third base line. Preceding the game, the Finley Market Association made its traditional pilgrimage from Elder and Vine Streets, and Marion Spellman sang the national anthem. As it did in some years, the association crowned the queen of opening day. Mayor Gene Roman, who was described as the number one Reds fan, threw out the first pitch to future Congressman Willis Gratison. The annual festivities provide a welcome relief from the sorrows of the day. Quite a year in our history with MLK's death and the controversial Vietnam War raging. So after that unusual year, let's move on to another year filled with controversy. 1972, the second opening day in Riverfront Stadium. My headline for the 1972 opener is... Does anyone still care? By 1972, labor unions had been a force in the United States for more than a century. In 1954, baseball players had formed the Major League Baseball Players Association, the most powerful union of sports players today, but the new union was barely noticed until the players hired Marvin Miller in 1966 to head the organization. Hiring Miller sent shockwaves through baseball's ownership circle. Miller was an acclaimed union man and had been a labor official in the Kennedy administration. In 1969, a nine-day strike at the start of spring training, coordinated by Miller, served notice to the team owners that players would unite behind Miller. Talks for a new collective bargaining agreement continued through spring training In 1972. The primary request from the players was for an increase in their pensions to match three years' worth of inflation. To the amazement of the owners, who wanted to break the fledgling union, 47 out of 48 player representatives voted to begin a strike just four days before opening day. Openers were canceled and 74 other games would never be made up until the owners blinked and agreed to increase the pension fund. Opening day was postponed 10 days until April 15. By most accounts, the fans felt that the big leaguers had abused their privilege of being professional baseball players who were handsomely paid to do something they loved. Enquirer columnist Dick Forbes blamed Miller for the strike, and he predicted the fans would soon forgive the players, just as Americans seem to do often with former enemies. Enquirer sports reporter Bob Herzl summed up the feelings of Reds fans. Quote, If there's anyone left who still cares, opening day 1972 has arrived at last. Unquote. The annual pregame parade went on as scheduled, but it was much easier to find a place to plant a lawn chair on the city's sidewalks than in past years as many spectators boycotted the event. When the color guards, bands, and rosy reds entered Riverfront Stadium, the applause was muted. More than 14,000 fans lodged a silent protest by not coming to the game against the Dodgers but the 37,895 who did show were anything but silent. Jerry Dowling, a cartoonist, depicted a conversation between two umpires that read, quote, When you say strike today, say it softly. Unquote. The only two players to receive a warm welcome by the fans in Cincinnati when they were introduced were Frank Robinson, the former Red star who was now a Dodger, and Pete Rose. Otherwise, the players from both teams were booed as they were introduced along the baselines. The fans reserved their heartiest catcalls for pitcher Jim Merritt, who was a Reds union representative, and Johnny Bench, who was an outspoken supporter of Marvin Miller. Unbeknownst to the fans, Merritt had resigned as Union rep two hours before the game and was replaced by Bench. The game proved to be a disaster for the Reds as they collected just three hits and lost 3-1. to one. The game mercifully ended in two hours and 13 minutes. The demolition of Crosley Field began four days later, the Reds' former home. Around the nation, other teams also received a cold reception from the fans. Some teams had fewer than 10,000 fans at their openers. On the same day, Americans seemed equally ambivalent about the nation's space program, according to an Enquirer editorial. Despite the pride the nation felt, Upon Apollo 11's first lunar landing in July 1969, NASA's critics asserted that the space program wasted resources that could be better directed toward economic and social problems. As opening day was underway, three astronauts were preparing for the United States' fifth lunar landing. John Young, Charles Duke Jr., and Thomas Mattingly II launched from Cape Canaveral, Florida, the next day. Their launch began an 11 day journey aboard Apollo 16, landing for the first time in the middle of the moon's mountains. During three days on the moon, they collected 211 pounds of lunar material to bring back to Earth. After the disastrous opening day, the Reds would go on to win their second National League Championship in three years, but again lose in the World Series, this time to the Oakland A's in seven games. Of course, the heyday of the Big Red Machine really sparked interest in opening day, and Cincinnati became enthralled with the holiday. The Big Red Machine helped to increase the frenzy around opening day, And, as we discussed previously, Marge Schott became Red's owner in 1985 and catapulted the interest in the celebration. And so my next year that I picked for today was 1990, a World Series championship year that began under unusual circumstances caused again by a labor issue. I call 1990 Lockout and Delay. For only the fifth time in their storied history, the Reds were forced to play their opener on the road in Houston. Season opening rainouts in 1877, 1885, and 1966, and the only scheduled opener on the road in 1888, had resulted in little fanfare when the Reds returned home. Those teams, however, were not owned by Marge Schott. She refused to allow anything to interfere with the holiday in Cincinnati. The season had been scheduled to start on April 2, but that date was scrapped after an owner's lockout of the players' delayed spring training. The season start date was pushed back a week, and teams were to begin playing what would have been their second week's schedule. The games from the first week on the schedule would be made up later in the season. That meant that the Reds were on the road during the first week of the 1990 season. The parade organizers canceled the parade as a result. President George H.W. Bush had been scheduled to be the first sitting president to throw out a pitch at a Reds opener, but with the schedule modification Bush attended a political fundraiser instead. A home opener in Cincinnati would not occur until April 17. Still, Marge Schott wanted her parade. She asked parade chairman Jeff Gibbs, how many days do you need to organize a parade? Gibbs replied, 21. Schott retorted, you've got 20. Gibbs replied, done. Hamilton County, which includes Cincinnati, has traditionally been known as a bastion of conservatism, although that reputation is changing. While Gibbs scrambled and the fans waited 2 weeks for the home season to start, the media was consumed with the criminal indictment on obscenity charges of the Contemporary Art Center and its director, Dennis Barry. It was the first time criminal charges had been levied against a museum in the United States. The controversy surrounded a retrospective collection of 175 Robert Mapplethorpe photographs called The Perfect Moment that had just opened in Cincinnati. It included classical nudes, sensual flowers, two portraits of nude children, and five explicit images of gay culture. Cincinnati's City Council believed that the museum should not be charged with a crime, but the city solicitor was bound to follow the dictates of the county. In an unusual Sunday court session on April 8, Federal District Court Judge Carl Rubin, a legend, ordered city and county authorities not to interfere with the continuation of the exhibit, even though the museum and its director had been indicted. A silver lining for the museum was that its membership increased nearly 50% in the first two weeks of April. Months later, an eight-person jury found the defendants not guilty on all counts. While all that was going on, Gibbs vowed the plant the biggest parade we've ever had. The market area was in the midst of a transformation, as the area's revitalization program using federal community development funds was picking up steam. Indeed, the lockout-delayed edition of the parade became the largest in history. Up to 50 groups entered the parade to replace some rooters who could not reschedule, given the delay. A Reds fan who had attended 70 consecutive openers, Marie Dieterman of Kenwood, was honored to be the Grand Marshal. She was joined in her car by a six-year-old T-ball enthusiast attending his first opener. He had only 69 more to go to catch up with Ms. Diederman. The two would later throw out the first pitches as relief pitchers for President Bush. The festivities included 22 month old Christopher Reardon of Amelia, Ohio, named America's Most Beautiful Baby. Also, a Wiener Mobile sponsored by Oscar Mayer. 10 mini Grand Prix cars and a restored trolley car from the Cincinnati Historical Society. Shot walked the entire parade route, receiving well wishes from thousands of fans. When game time arrived, the fans had reason to celebrate the string of games that preceded the Cincinnati opener. The Reds had been perfect on the road trip, winning six straight games against Houston and Atlanta. Red, white, and blue bunting along the stadium railings gave the stadium a World Series look. The ushers and grounds crew were dressed in tuxedos and tails. The pregame hoopla lived up to previous standards, including an appearance by the U.S. Army Reserve's 100th Division Band. Another special release of Pigeons, that was done in previous years, and tricks performed by Princess Shotzi, an elephant. Gibbs' organizational skills over the coming years would put the parade over the top. In the game, two members of the self-proclaimed Nasty Boys, Norm Charlton and Randy Myers, pitched three scoreless innings in relief, and the Reds extended their streak to seven games in a 2-1 nail-biter. By the way, Rob Dibble was a third nasty boy when the Reds new manager, Lou Pinella, a rookie when it came to opening day in Cincinnati, saw one hundred reporters waiting in the press room after the game. he asked quote, "Is this the postseason or what Unquote. only thirty eight thousand three hundred fifty four fans bought tickets for the delayed opener, but Pinella was impressed with the hoopla. The fans, in turn, would have occasion to be impressed with the club's performance during the season as the Reds shocked the baseball world by going wire to wire, meaning that they were in first place in the National League for every single day of the season. They went on to win their division and later sweep the heavily favored Oakland A's in the World Series. Not a bad run, for new skipper Lou Pinella. Now, after the 1990 World Championship, the next 20 years were marked by stunning opening days, including the 1994 year when Major League Baseball tried to change our opening day tradition to an opening night tradition, and the 1996 death of umpire John McSherry on opening day just a few pitches into the game. But there are also exciting years, highlighted by the arrival of Ken Griffey Jr. in 2000 and the purchase of the team by Bob Castellini in 2006 and a new owner that promised better years ahead. But I would like to end this history lesson with the historic year of 2012, when the party literally exploded I call 2012 Votto Goes to the Banks. In anticipation of the 2012 opener, fan Ben Schooner told The Enquirer what many others were thinking. Opening day is our local first day of spring. As winter ends, it is time for pasty Midwesterners to emerge from our sheltered confines. Time to embrace the sunshine, the green grass, and the hope that this could be the Reds' year. We relish the protracted digestion of a pastime which lacks the frenetic pace or the intense chaos of our other games, yet is no less complex." Reds fans believe that the unsuccessful 2011 season was an aberration due to bad luck with the pitching staff and they had hoped that the Reds' off-season moves would bring dividends. The city council voted unanimously for opening day to be recognized as a ceremonial holiday, whatever that meant. It certainly was not a paid holiday for city workers. But all of a sudden, there was an abundance of events competing for fans' pregame attention. Of course, there was the annual two-hour parade that would draw tens of thousands. Then there was the party on Fountain Square that included live music, followed by the game being shown on the big screen atop Macy's Department Store. On the riverfront, a seven-hour festival with food, drinks, and music took place on the Schmidlap event lawn in the new Smale Riverfront Park the park perked up the previously drab shoreline of the Ohio River. In the Banks entertainment area, even more bars and restaurants had opened in time for the 2012 opener. And most significantly, a new tradition was born on the streets outside the park. A block party that would draw thousands between the end of the parade and the first pitch. The block party benefited the Reds Community Fund, a nonprofit that seeks to improve the lives of young people through baseball. The mob outside the ballpark filled several blocks as fans listened to music by frankly speaking and enjoyed ice cold beer. Without question, 2012 was the largest party on any single day in Cincinnati history. On the Internet, game tickets were being hawked at prices from $140 to $600, nearly 20 to 30 times their face value. Joey Votto, a reserved, introverted star, known for his intellectual approach to hitting, became the face of the franchise. He was the league's MVP in 2010, and in 2011, he became the first red first baseman to win a gold glove. Two days before the Thursday, April 4 opener, dressed in a dark three piece suit, the star promoted a new breakfast cereal called Vados. The product was a honey nut toasted oat cereal in a limited edition collector's box featuring a drawing of Votto in action. Rumors had been circulating that the Reds and Votto had reached a long-term deal that would keep him as a Red beyond 2013 when his current contract expired. On the eve of the opener, the Reds held a press conference at which Bob Castellini announced his next gamble. He was all-in with Votto and signed him to a 10-year deal worth $225 million. Votto said afterwards that larger market teams may have offered him more after 2013, but he added, quote, Bottom line is I like it here. I enjoy coming to the ballpark and playing in front of the Cincinnati fans. I like the momentum we are building with the fans. That's a big deal for me period, unquote. He joked that his girlfriend probably hoped that he was willing to make another long-term commitment. It turned out that he was not willing to make that commitment. In any event, the huge contract for a player in a small market was a talk of fans throughout opening day. How can anyone be worth that much? Juan asked. A Catholic nun hoped Votto could buy the sisters a new grotto. Pete Rose, buying two blankets in the store inside the ballpark, said, quote, I'd give him a lot of money, but not that much. By the way, Rose had been the first singles hitter to earn 100000 in a season. Mark Kerr, a truck driver from Dillsboro, Indiana, put the contract in perspective. Herr was dressed in a vintage red stockings uniform from 1869, and he talked about George Wright, the red stockings captain who made $1,500 for the season. This is what Her said. Quote, Baseball players have always been overpaid. $1,500 was not $225 million, but $1,500 was a lot of money back then, period, unquote. Her was correct. Wright's salary was exponentially larger than the average worker of his day, but still, there was reason to wonder whether the Reds had paid too much. History would be the judge of the price tag. The parade route in 2012 was jammed with optimistic fans. ESPN baseball announcer Aaron Boone was the grand marshal. He had played with the Reds for seven seasons. In his first two seasons in 1997 and 1998, he played alongside his brother Brett. And in his last three seasons, his father, Bob Boone, was the manager. The Boones were still popular. Behind Boone were more than 200 parade entries. There was the, quote, make it official float, unquote, carrying Mike Schuster and Councilman Wendell Young, who had spearheaded the effort to make opening day a holiday. Four U.S. Army soldiers in camouflage units chauffeured soldiers from the Wounded Warrior Projects. Three generations of the Gray family waved him afloat honoring their mother, Catherine, of Hamilton, Ohio. She was described as the world's greatest Reds fan. Her family commented that when her casket was lowered into the ground at the cemetery, her children all sang, Take Me Out to the Ball Game in Her Honor. While the pregame party continued in the banks, the pregame ceremonies on the field featured Miss Ohio 2012, Audrey Bolte of Batavia, Ohio. She delivered the ceremonial first pitch to the retiring sheriff of Hamilton County, Simon Lease, Jr. Lease had been sheriff for 25 years after previously serving the county as a prosecutor and judge. He became nationally famous for prosecuting Larry Flint and Hustler magazine in the late 1970s and was featured in the movie The People vs. Larry Flint. Much like his prosecution of Flint, Lisa's toss was slightly off target. Senator Rob Portman was honorary captain of the Reds for the day, and he accompanied manager Dusty Baker to home plate to exchange lineup cards with the Miami Marlins and review ground rules for the game. Everyone was having a good time at the game, except for the Miami Marlins. Votto collected a hit and a walk, Jay Bruce hit a home run, and Johnny Cueto pitched seven scoreless innings. The Reds cruised to a 4-0 shutout win. The team would go on to replicate the success of the 1970s Big Red Machine, winning 97 games. They then traveled to San Francisco to open the playoffs and breezed the two easy wins. Disaster struck at home when the Giants eliminated the Reds with a three-game sweep. In national news that day, it was reported that Mitt Romney had achieved an insurmountable lead over Rick Santorum in the Republican race to oppose President Barack Obama in November. The former Massachusetts governor had picked up 86 more delegates in Maryland, Wisconsin, and the District of Columbia. During the three days prior to the opener, U.S. Today conducted a survey of national attitudes regarding the controversial shooting of Trayvon Martin in Sanford, Florida, in February. The results showed a racial divide as to whether people believed George Zimmerman, a neighborhood watch captain, should be charged with murder. After the loss to the Giants in the postseason, Reds fans spent the winter with a severe case of indigestion. Castellini may have been all in on the Reds, but they were declared all out of the chase for the pennant after the disaster at home in the playoffs. Ladies and gentlemen, that was a lot to cover, but I hope you enjoyed these brief excerpts from some of the more interesting years in the 150-year history of Opening Day in Cincinnati, our great holiday. It has been an honor to relive these years with our listeners who have joined us for this episode of Freaking Out About Opening Day with Randy Freaking and hope you will tune in again as we approach Opening Day. This is Randy Freaking signing off, and in the immortal words of Marty Brenneman, So long, everybody!